Hi, I'm Bob Fisher, and I'm your host today on This is Design Intelligence. Evelyn Lee is Head of Workplace Strategy and Innovation at Slack Technologies. With a background in both architecture and business, she is a widely published columnist and featured speaker at national design and architecture conferences. She served as the first-ever female treasurer to the AIA National Board in 2020 and 2021, and will serve as the AIA National President in 2025. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she talks about her role at Slack, how we should rethink the business model of architecture and design, and why architects should not be afraid to step out of their lane and talk about more than just buildings. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Evelyn Lee, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. Thanks for having me. So excited to join the conversation. Now, one of the things I think that'll be the biggest challenge in this conversation is kind of keeping it uh, in some kind of reasonable length. If for no other reason, then you have got to be one of the busiest people uh, that I've talked to this year. You are currently the head of workplace strategies and innovation at Slack Technologies. You are uh, in 2024, will be the AIA first vice president, and in 2025, you'll be the president. You and uh, Janine Chastain uh, have a podcast that I understand has just passed a, a milestone called Practice Disrupted, and you are the founder of the Practice of Architecture web community. Uh, you've been a columnist in a number of publications, including in Design Intelligence quite some time ago. And then you've amassed on LinkedIn alone more than 16,000 followers. That's a pretty busy schedule to take. One of the things I was thinking about in preparing for this interview was what the common threads are that knit together all of the different things that you do. And one question kept popping into my mind, which is, what needs to change and why? Related to this idea of the common thread, I think technology is evolving so quick. The way people communicate with one another is changing, and the priorities that individuals have relative to work, life, family, friends, mental health, and well-being is all changing. And so I think what needs to change is our ability and our systems that we set up to, to adapt to those changes, to l learn from the past, and also to identify what are our best opportunities to move forward, which is, is kind of like, I think, the best non-answer I can give you to that <laughs> big question. It was an impossibly large question. Um, but it's a good framework to kind of explore um, explore an answer. You talked about a lot of these different elements in our lives and in our professional and personal lives that are changing. You talked about how is it that we can get on top of this change? How is it that we can adapt and learn? So let's maybe zero in and examine how that fits into rethinking the practice of architecture. The incoming generation is looking for more out of their careers and out of their lives than our firms are set up to provide in a meaningful way. I think the business model of architecture is hurting us because we're not getting paid where we are most valued necessarily. And it also doesn't enable us to be 
competitive with adjacent fields that new graduates are looking at going into. And I think that in order for us to build the buildings that we want to build, we need to be able to talk intelligently beyond buildings to get into conversation sooner and to stay there after our buildings are done. When you say get into conversations beyond buildings, one of the first places my brain goes is to the world of the owner and how they might look at a building and the way it's trying to serve their business goals or serve their organizational goals. They're thinking about it in terms of pro formas. They're trying to solve some kind of uh, business or organizational problem through the building. Is that the kind of thing that you're talking about or am I thinking too narrowly? I, yes, I would say yes and to that. I think if you think about how a lot of owners that work with architects, that work more frequently with architects, right, there's a way, there's a standard way to procure services. And usually when architects are brought onto our project through an RFP process, I feel like we're often finding ourselves saying like, well, we should be brought on sooner to think through some things relative to programming, that would affect how much you would want to budget for this next opportunity. So so my way of thinking is how do we get into those conversations, even from an organizational development standpoint, in terms of where are you heading and how is the building, if we were going to take offices, which goes back to my work at Slack, how is the office a part of that broader ecosystem relative to the employee experience? And be able to talk about that and then as an architect zero in on how do we design the office to to support the overall employee experience. But it's a building is just one piece of a larger system and a larger puzzle. And we need to be able to talk about that system more broadly. What's your sense of how architects do or do not understand that concept of there being these broader systems at play? My sense is that we want to be a part of it, but we've designed ourselves into our own little box. I think we we want to be a part of those conversations. We want to engage in the conversations around the broader systems, but I think we're afraid to step out of our lane and talk about more than just buildings. And I, I think it's more about we don't know how to in many aspects because so much of what we learned in school, so much of what we focus on from a professional development standpoint after we leave school is project delivery and the building project. And I think if we took a little bit more time to think where else could we expand our professional development, then we might be able to be more willing to step step out of that lane a little more. So when you talk about stepping out of that lane, what are the places someone would step I'm going, I'm going to use this analogy with the office space again. So I think a lot of architects want to be in the conversations about where, what does the future of the office look like? What is the future of work? And a, a lot of the responses to that is ab- around how we work, not only where we work. Um, I would argue that the future of work is more actually about how we work than than where we work and where we work is is the building piece of that. So we need to reflect in our own practices more deeply than just how many days per week we're coming in. 
And then we could use essentially our own practice as a case study for our clients about, you know, here are some ways to make flexible work work better. Here are some ways to onboard new employees in a way that they don't feel disconnected and we can reconnect them to the culture. This is how we communicate with one another, no matter where people are working. These are the asynchronous workflows that we've adopted that you could probably adopt on your own. How does the office engage with that greater system? But it's but it's talking about more than just the building as a part of the larger system. Well, with a larger system, there's a lot of different factors that go into, for example, what kind of experience an employee has, you know, during their workday. Right. What role does architecture play in that? You know, how do you how do you engage with these conversations uh, in your role at Slack, for instance? So a lot of there's a lot of firms out there that have workplace strategists, especially the larger firms. They all have a strategy group, right? It's not dissimilar from the conversations that I have as a workplace strategist. And in that role, um, you find that a a lot of companies have these silos, right? So they have uh, the the HR or the people operations individuals don't necessarily talk to the the tech individuals that are supporting the hardware and software needs of employees, don't often talk to learning and development that supports career growth and career paths. And similar to how we help our consultants in a building, I often say that architects are one of the mo- like the best implementers in the in the world. So similar to how we manage a variety of consultants and march them towards a, a common goal, there's an ability for architects to see across those silos and to understand the overall employee experience and say if we want to get from A to B, this is how we need to move forward together. And I think that's a role that we can continue to play in the broader system outside of just the building. And how does someone gain a seat at the table, to use a terrible old cliche? You know, I I think it's, well, you have to be willing, you you have to start talking about things. The other parts of the system that you see that are disconnected, right? So I think it's you have to be able to identify here here are the things that I see disconnected that if if they were to talk together and work together we we would get to a solution a better solution faster and and identify that and that can happen I feel like architects feel a lot of this inherently when they're going through a building project and they're working with a lot of different stakeholders and and you're asking like why why aren't these two stakeholder groups talking to to one another? So that's a conversation where you could then turn around and say, even though I'm working on this project, you know, for future projects, you may want to consider doing this type of engagement prior to the next big project to bring those stakeholder groups together. Or if you do a lot of high-end residential, where essentially you don't have a lot of repeat clients necessarily because you're building the one house for them. I think identifying those disconnects and then saying like between spouses or between any kids, any stakeholders relative to the project and say, look, we're not going to get, be willing to stop the project and say, we're not going to be willing to, we're not going to get to a good outcome unless we resolve this amongst our stakeholder group, and then we can move forward and and be willing to say, I know this is going to add time, 
Um, this may add cost, but if you really want an outcome that you all believe in, then I, then like having the wherewithal to say we need to really stop the project and focus on this and manage the client expectations to that. Well, it seems like two big ingredients of what you're talking about are communication and helping move people from one place to another. And I don't mean that obviously physically, but kind of getting them from one place of understanding to another. How do you see those two skills working into, or those two areas of emphasis, if I've called them correctly, working into your own work and all the different things that you're involved with? So going back to the Slack example, I think what a lot of people don't realize about Slack is that we were like every other company pre-pandemic, we had about 2 to 3% of our workforce was remote. We had a CTO who has since done 180, but at the time a CTO that very much believed everyone needed to be in offices. We could only hire people that were geographically close to major city centers where we had physical offices. So a lot of what I'm working through is working with our workforce labs and our research team who who works with a lot of outside researchers to think through operations, processes, and policies that help keep our employees happy and productive and healthy throughout their workday by really leveraging our tool to make for an increasingly flexible workplace. And that is a lot of um, change management. That is a lot of understanding people's different needs and getting them to go to a consensus to create a, a policy. And it's a lot of a communication. And I would say one of the best lessons that I learned from leadership was the importance of throughout the pandemic, prior to acquisition and through the acquisition, through our leadership at Slack was the value of transparent and authentic communication and using communication to manage expectations. We continuously say we're never going to get it right the first time, but with your help, we can get it right. We can make it better the next time and we can continue to, to adapt to, to make things better. We we clearly state that um, everyone is human and we all have our faults and we're working through this together. And I think that's been a really beneficial side to maintaining kind of the culture of experimentation that we've had at Slack and enabling us to experiment with what flexible work looks like within the company. Well, there's a really tough inherent challenge in the scenario that you were just talking about, because in times of uncertainty, people need to be reassured by their leaders. And one of the things that's reassuring is understanding that there's a direction being followed, that there is a path forward, hopefully out of whatever the situation is. But authentic, transparent communication also makes one think about confessing when you don't have the answer. How do you hit that right balance between being authentic and open and transparent on the one hand and providing the kind of leadership that reassures and guides people through these difficult kinds of situations? I think it's, frankly, by acknowledging that there's going to be bumps along the way. You can still have a vision and acknowledge that it's not going to be a smooth path to achieve that vision. And and you can share where we're, we're headed. So Lidiani, our new CEO, has said, you know, we're 
we're not going to mandate that Slack cloud bring people back to the office X number of days. But in order for us to do that, we need your help to understand what does productivity and and what does flexibility mean within Slack and how do we get there together. And that it's going to require changes in how we work with one another. And it's going to require our managers taking on new skills, probably that they hadn't taken on before. So I think it's, we still very much have a vision of where we want to head, but it's it's also inviting people to be a part of the process to get to that vision and giving them permission to fail because we are all human. So what is, uh, it, it's interesting, our organization does a whole lot of work with helping uh, firms and other organizations figure out what their vision is. That's actually something I spend a good amount of my day doing with uh with folks in the industry. Tell us about, in general, uh, your idea of vision, how it's important to leaders, and how one is both inclusive in putting that vision together and getting people to that vision without having the whole design by committee thing happen, where the vision loses its boldness. How, how does that work? I feel like this is a question I should be asking you because <laughs> you're doing it on a regular basis. <laughs> I, I mean, this is something that I'm I'm working through myself with the the practice of architecture and what I want it to be from from a future. I, I think leadership usually has a very a, a bold vision of where they want the company to head. So there's mission, vision, and values, and I mission and vision I feel is usually crafted by leadership or guided by leadership. Right? We want to grow X number by the end of the year. We want to go into these these geographic locations. We want to expand to include another another vertical or, or new services. And we want to do it in a, way, a meaningful way that we can give back to our employees and remain profitable at the end. But the where I think the committee by design really comes into play is with understanding the employees' values and and taking a pulse on where an organization's values are right now and what their employees value most, and then really collectively figuring out what are those key values that we all need to lean into to hit that vision together. So when you think about this idea of values and vision and how they relate to leadership, what are you thinking in terms of your upcoming leadership roles with AIA? My vision and the reason why I remain so active within the AIA and within the industry, even though I'm very critical of it, I always say that my being critical of the industry is because I love the people and the industry so much, is that in order for us to thrive as an industry, we need to we need to change how we are doing things. We need to look at where there's an opportunity to redo our our business model from an individual firm standpoint. I think we need to be more open to what is happening around us to not understand only the threats, but the opportunities, but also to rebuild partnerships with individuals like myself who might be on an alternative career track that have a lot to give back to the profession and has, still have a love of architecture, but for whatever reason found ourselves on a different path. And that 
we need to really find a way to collectively move the profession together as as a whole, which means to whatever extent we can, kind of eliminating this competitive nature that we have within ourselves to be willing to have more conversations about how we change things going forward. Well, it's an interesting position to be in because firms do, in fact, compete with each other over projects. Um, but firms have a lot to gain in working with one another cooperatively and collaboratively in order to improve the profession. You mentioned the need to look at the business model of architecture and design and maybe rethink how that is put together. What are some more thoughts you have on what the right kind of business model is? I think this goes, this circles a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier and our ability to to talk beyond buildings. After I graduated with my MBA and my MPA, I landed at an SMB, a, a medium-sized firm called MK Think. We were probably anywhere between 12 to 40 people at any given standpoint. And they started a strategy group. And what was so unique about that strategy group relative to the strategy groups that large firms tend to have was the fact that we were the size that we were and we had a strategy group. Um, and it was focused on expanding services beyond traditional practice. So what services can we offer pre-architectural, but what other services can we offer post-architectural? And ultimately, the strategy group sustained MK Think through the recession, and the strategy group was able to bill more on, a, on an hourly basis than we could our, our architecture counterparts because we're competing with services that, you know, usually the big consulting firms, the BCGs, the McKenzie's, the Baines provide. So there's, there's opportunity outside of, there's opportunity in, in, expand, in, a, in a more expansive model. I think there's also opportunity with AI to rethink how we shift a lot of the what we get paid on to be in the the DD and SD process and less on the CD process. So to get really paid for the value of design going into the product project um, and lean more heavily on technology uh, to support what the the areas that everyone when everyone talks about architecture being commoditized, I think lean into that. And then rethink how we get paid for the value of design, which is where our which is where our, our true superpower lies, anyways. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much uh, value that's up at the front part of kind of the architectural cycle, if you will, uh, and that's not traditionally where the value's been realized or the, when the value where the value's been claimed. It's more been on. Uh, the technical aspects of things or the construction documents, as you mentioned. How is it that you convince clients that you can step outside of what they may think of as the architect's lane in order to work on issues of organizational development? Yeah, I, I point to my time at MK Think um, about the business development cycle being twice as long as an architecture project to really flex that muscle. A lot of the time, we found ourselves responding to standard RFPs by saying, this is great. This is what I think is missing from your RFP. If you were to do this again, this is how I would have approached it. 
Um, and here's how we do it from a data-driven standpoint. So you can actually see the savings and, and the value and the decisions you're making before you even send out an RFP. And usually that would get us into the interview room because they were interested in a completely different approach that they hadn't seen Miss Architects take. And and usually that would enable us to to build relationships and but we wouldn't get selected for the project because our, our RFP response and in our in our interview was saying here we here's how we would approach it differently. But then and these were for some bigger clients, right? So these were for like the Nature Conservancy. This is for um, the UC, a lot of the schools in the UC system, um, a lot of school districts. So these are big clients that typically hire architect on a regular basis. But then the next time when they were thinking about redoing their strategic plan or how they make broader decisions about their facilities and operations, then they're like, we should just call up MK Think and think about Ask them how they, they would think about approaching this. And that's, so the business development cycle is why I said it became twice as long. Mm -hmm. But at least they knew that we were thinking more broadly than our typical architecture services. And we used any entry we could where architects typically enter to talk a little about how we would approach it a little bit differently. Well, it carves out a unique place for you in the mind of the client. Right, because you're different than any other architecture firm because you're thinking more broadly, you're thinking about their context as opposed to just the context of the project. So let's talk a little bit about um, the, some of the endeavors that you're involved with. Tell us about Practice Disrupted and the Practice of Architecture web community. How did those come about? What are they? And uh, why did you feel the need to work with others to create them? Yeah, so practice of architecture started, and I feel like any good business continues to pivot and adjust based on how much time I can give it. But it started actually when I was in business school, and I was reading a lot of articles that I wish I knew about as an architect or that I knew was, I wish that was part of my professional development as an architect and saying like, here, these, these are things that we should learn about strategic operations, about marketing, about how we position ourselves, etc. So it, it started out as just a collection of, of articles, a curated collection of articles that I would then kind of put an architect spin on it as why it would be important for an architect to pay attention to. And then as I left business school and started working at MK Think, I had a bigger vision for what the practice of architecture could be. And what I want it to be and what I hope to, for it to become in the next five years is really an accelerator and, and an entity that funds new ideas and services, products and services coming out of architecture firms to continuously raise the value of the profession that way. But then the pandemic hit. And what I realized is so many architecture firms are buried in the day-to-day just making payroll, ensuring that they have enough money in the pipeline to keep all of their employees, that uh, it's somewhat kind of become a focus on on business operations and, and practice management from from a standpoint. And and now specifically, I love being the kind of the, the devil's advocate and saying, you know, there's so many people that have ideas around AI and its application to the project and to the buildings. And I'm saying like, but there's so much opportunity to use AI on the business operations side of things that we're overlooking. So 
So right now, it's, it's really focused on creating a community of forward thinkers that are interested in taking ideas from outside of the profession and thinking about how we can look at our practice operations differently to build a better way forward. And then, and then a part of that is also looking at where can we productize things and, and where can we really scale things as an architecture firm, which then goes back to accelerating these ideas as an incubation. The podcast itself, Practice Disrupted, was a little bit happenstance. I had been talking to a good friend, Mark LePage, who does a lot of consulting for small architects. Yes, I know, I know Mark entrepreneurs. pretty well. He's a great guy. Yeah. So he's had a podcast for forever, and I asked him about what it took to get it going. I've always been a writer. Since like 2005, I was writing for blogs before people believed that writing you can make a living out of writing for a blog. But I was interested in this new medium. And of course, I... I'm an architect. I don't want to put anything out there that's not finished. So then I had a way, do I really have the time to to do this and, and put this out in the world in a way that I would feel okay putting it out into the world? And the answer at the time was no. But then Mark launched Gable Media, which is his podcasting network, and he asked if I would like to be one of the first podcasts to join Gable Media. So um, with his know-how and knowledge, we launched Practice Disrupted. And Janine at the time and I had, were always interested in finding a way to work together. So we saw this as a perfect opportunity to do so. And she's brought such, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of old hat now in the architecture profession. And I, I enjoy and I appreciate the younger millennial perspective that she brings to the conversation as somebody who graduated into the profession during the recession and what she's had to deal with and and, and how that generation has struggled differently, then I, I, I fall more firmly in the, the X category, which I, I feel is also a missing generation in architecture. So that's, that's how Practice Disrupted has supplemented practice of architecture and then a lot of the work I do around business operations is not dissimilar from the work that I do at Slack when it comes to building out people, process, and policies, and, and supporting the business that way. So so in a way, it's it's a lot, but it all weaves together. There, there is a common thread through all of it in the end. Do you think people would have been as receptive to this message 10 years ago as they are today? Or do you feel like architects and other designers have gotten to be more accepting of business ideas or ideas from the business world? I think they're more receptive today. I, I've been giving some talks. And um, back in 2016 was the first time that I, I John Sarnecki was editor of Contract Magazine, and he invited me to, con, to come and talk to the Contract Design Forum. And I told him I wanted to open the talk by saying that architects are three recessions away from being extinct. So I started having this conversation then, and they were not nearly as receptive. But I've reframed that conversation, and I've, I've re-said that statement even recently in Syracuse, in Oklahoma, and Nebraska. And I think people are, people are more receptive, but I also think it's out of necessity too, right? There's a growing increase in VC funding getting spent in the AECO space. There are new companies that are coming from founders that are coming out of tech 
that are hiring a lot more architects 1099 to do design work, or they're bringing in architects to do project management or UX design that have become now a competitor for our workforce that didn't exist necessarily 10 years ago. And then and and the promise that they that those companies have, the promise that Slack had for me to provide better work-life balance, career development, and to enable me to live the life I want to live outside of work, I think are all external forces that are really pushing people to think differently because they have to in order to be able to hire the talent that they want to have in their firms and then to keep that talent and then to do the work that they want to do. But aren't younger generations coming into the workforce with different expectations than you or I might have, both being Gen Xers? I think so. I mean, I, I mean, absolutely, yes. So that's another reason why it, it has to evolve, right? I think if anything... So a few things that are happening right now, you know, the second firm in New York rolled out privately unionized their workforce. So those conversations aren't going to go away. There's a lot of Reba and then, you know, what's going on across the pond with Adages and Associates isn't isn't pretty, but it's shining a, a bleak reality on kind of the culture of of offices that we are inherently known for in the profession from being underpaid um, and overworked. So people, the younger generation's talking about it more, and they're either, essentially, I feel like they're going to say, find a place for ourselves, or we're going to find a place somewhere else. One critique of the field of architecture is that it tends to be an expense that only, uh, let's say, the more economically advantaged can afford. Then you also have this idea that architects and designers are not being paid for their full value. How do you address each of those two things that seem to be in contradiction? I'm, I'm in the process of writing an article kind of on this right now. So a piece of that is consulting services is really hard and finding the right mix, and, and, and it's not scalable, right? So we are service providers as architects. We are paid often by, by the hour, and to get access to our service, for us to get paid more, we have to raise our prices or we have to work more hours or do a combination of both. And at some point, if you raise your prices so high, you are going to outprice yourself. And, and your accessibility to to the broader community or to to populations that you want to engage more in. So I think for me it, it goes back to to the business model and shifting how we get paid for our value. But it also means that we think about where can we provide opportunities that are really scalable to a greater number of, of individuals. Uh, for instance, I would say is that I have a, a business school friend who is starting this really great company. They don't have an architecture background in the Bay Area that keep up the operations of it's, it's a they charge an, an annual subscription service fee to ensure that you are doing regular maintenance on your house and they are creating a network of handymen that 
that kind of get assigned to your house. So you're doing everything from checking filters, replacing batteries in your alarms on a regular basis, etc. Um, essentially, they are supporting the the operation of a household after a building is delivered, right? So there's an opportunity there for architects to to start those type of services where they enable additional touch points above and beyond that support the operations of the buildings that they have designed. And, you know, that exists as a, a subscription service and then they can... Um, that's a scalable model in a way that consulting isn't scalable. And it's a different business model that would potentially enable us to pay ourselves more without having to work more hours or without having to raise our fee for services. Another way that MK I think has engaged with individuals is, I believe, I don't know this for sure, but when I was working at MK Think, they had just brought on Oakland Unified School District. This was back in 2012, 2010. But they had started doing a facilities assessment for Oakland Unified School District. So not not a, a wealthy school district by any means. But what they have done is they've become the data holders to all of the facility information, to all of the systems, the building systems. And they've layered over that census data to understand where the student body population might shift in the future and how they might better spend their resources to support that student body population. So they've essentially been on retainer for Oakland School District ever since I've been there or ever since I was there and left, getting paid to talk about supporting decisions that are being made supporting their Oakland's facilities but not necessarily delivering traditional architecture services in that sense. But again, that's a scalable model that allows us to get paid more without necessarily raising our service fees or increasing the amount of time we're spending on on projects. And and by doing that, Oakland sees us as a valuable partner in all of their decision-making process. And I would say that MK Think is probably one of the few vendors that have spanned multiple I would say over five superintendents that has changed over time um, because they see the value in what they're delivering. So those are things that we could do to change the business model and to to actually get paid more while also scaling the model in a way that we can deliver design services to more people. Sure. So finding creative new ways to create new value or greater value. So I want to close out with one question for you. There are a lot of good-hearted people who are in architecture and design, who got into the profession in order to make a positive impact. How is it that as an individual, you know, I, I as an individual architect or any other individual architect, I'm actually not an architect, but if I were an architect, how is it that I might increase my positive impact? What can I do? I feel like so much of what we can learn as adults, we learned as children. <laughs> Something that I, you know, I tell her my six and and, and eight year old. I first of all, any anything positive that you put out in the world, I feel is is a multiplier, right? So, uh, you know, if if you if you see something in your firm happening that you're not quite happy with, be willing to question it. Or if you see an opportunity that you would like to your firm to pursue, consider asking leadership or if you are a leader, 
um, considering us looking at your your vision, mission, and values, and and see if like there there's better alignment to make to make that happen. Vivian Lin was working at Raphael Vinoli in New York when the pandemic hit, and New York City went, um, Brooklyn in particular, the repurposed their funds to f- support the COVID effort and stopped the composting program. So she started her own composting program, and it was so successful, she left Raphael Vinoli to do it. This was somebody who is, I don't know, maybe a year or two out of college. I feel like if if she can make a positive impact in, in her community and, and find a way that's meaningful, a meaningful way for her to do it, then there's a lot of different ways that we can make a positive impact on our communities as architects. So if you see a need, address it. Address it. Sounds good. Well, Evelyn, I really appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, sharing your thoughts and perspectives uh, and stories of all the wonderful things that you're doing. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence, The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.